Well, good morning. I'd like to present you with three scenarios and then ask you a series of follow-up questions. Scenario number one, let's say you drive home today. Uh, pretty much everybody drives to Faith Free. I think like two people walk, but let's say you drive home today and you pull into your driveway or you pull into your parking lot or you pull into your parking space and you begin to wonder about your neighbors, the, the people that actually live around you. And when you think about it, you realize that you don't really know your neighbors. You, you know their names for some of them, but you don't really know what, what their, their greatest joys are, what their deepest fears are. You don't really understand the, the events of their lives that have really shaped them in terms of who they are. And the thought crosses your mind, you, you think, I wonder if, uh, if God has strategically placed me to be a neighbor to my neighbors. I wonder if God has sovereignly put me in my neighborhood or in my apartment complex or my dorm or my fraternity or sorority because he wants to use me for his purposes in their lives. I wonder if this is no coincidence. And so you actually purpose in your heart, you actually decide, I'm going to start reaching out to my neighbors. I'm going to start loving my neighbors very intentionally. I'm going to start loving them even sacrificially. As a matter of fact, I'm going to, to attempt to be the best neighbor that my neighbors have ever had. Scenario number two, let's say that you are a husband and you are increasingly uh, disappointed. You are increasingly disheartened in your marriage. And you realize that, that you don't understand your wife anymore. You don't understand why she does these things, why she doesn't do those things. And you think about it and you realize this has not always been the case. And you realize that there was a day when you used to have, be able to have these long, meandering conversations about all sorts of things. And you made new discoveries about your wife at every turn. But somewhere along the line, you stopped being interested in your wife. And so you purpose in your heart, you decide, you know, I'm going to make it my ambition to be the foremost expert on my wife. I'm going to seek to understand her. I'm going to understand her motivations, her fears. I'm going to understand everything I can about her so that I can tailor make my love for her. Scenario number three, let's say that you're one of these people that really views work as kind of a necessary evil. It, you know, you got to pay the bill. So every week I'm going to drag my weary bones out of the door and I'm going to go do my job to earn a paycheck. But you have this friend, this friend is a elementary school teacher. And she's just, just so, she has such a vision for what she does. And when she talks about her, her, her work, it's just different from every, anything you've seen. She has this vision for what she imparts to her kids, the, the knowledge and the skills. And she has a vision for the, her relationship with them and her relationship with their families. And the thought crosses your mind, I wonder if I might ever have that type of vision for my work. I wonder if I could ever see my work as a way to serve God. I wonder if I could ever actually do my work unto the Lord as opposed to doing my work for nobody in particular. 
And so you purpose in your heart. You decide, you know, I'm going to change the way I, I think about my work. I'm going to look for the common good, what my work accomplishes. And so I'm going to make my, my work a matter of prayer, a matter of study, and a matter of conversation. And fundamentally, I'm going to do my work differently. And so I give those three scenarios because those are possible applications of things that Peter is going to teach later in the book of 1 Peter. But here's my question. What type of person actually makes those kinds of changes? Very few people actually change once they get in a rut. We, we tend to think, I'm always going to be like this. I'm always going to do the same things. My work's always going to be such. My marriage is never going to change. My, my neighborhood, my relationships. Are never, well, what kind of per- person actually changes? Who actually gets this vision for loving their neighbors as themselves, sacrificially, uh, intentionally? Uh, what type of a husband gets a vision for understanding his wife and living with her in co- ter- terms of understanding and heaping honor upon her? Uh, what type of person enters his or her workplace with a sense of purpose, thinking perhaps many, if not most, of the good works that God has prepared beforehand for me to do take place in this 40, 50, 60 best hours of my week, and I'm going to serve God in my work? Who does that? Well, the answer that first Peter gives is believers in Jesus Christ who understand their identity, people who understand that we are a spiritual household, we are a royal priesthood, we are actually the people of God. Today we're going to talk about that in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. Peter explains this identity we have as believers. And if we understand the significance of our identity, if it goes from just being ideas to being something that that animates us, uh, we will enter into core relationships and responsibilities in the family, in the workplace, uh, in our neighborhoods, in the church, with a sense of purpose and intentionality. Even though we're living in exile, even though our citizenship is in heaven and we are out of place in this world, uh, we will live our, our, our lives for God. We'll have this vision for being used by him in deep and substantive ways. And so if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, okay, so if you have been born from above, Peter is going to tell you, you are a spiritual household. You are a holy priesthood. You are the people of God. Okay, this is not something we take for ourselves. This is something God declares over us and about us. Notice the imagery that that Peter develops in verses 4 and 5. He says, as you come to him, speaking of Jesus, uh, as you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And so these, these verses make clear that, that in Jesus' day, there were two very different types of building projects going on. Two very different builders. Uh, they were building different structures. They evaluated the building, building materials very differently. So on the one hand, uh, you have human builders. 
in Jesus' day. In Acts 4, Peter was talking to the, the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem, and he quoted from Psalm 118 when he said to them, Jesus is the stone which you rejected, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. So he told them, you've evaluated Jesus, and for the building you're building, he was worthless. The Jewish authorities had no, no need for a Messiah like Jesus, especially a crucified Messiah. So he was the stone which the builders rejected. On the other hand, God is building a builder. Actually, he's the owner. He's the architect. He is the general contractor. And so God is building another type of building. He calls it a spiritual house, a house that is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And normally in the New Testament, when you see the term spiritual, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And so the spiritual house is a house that is enlivened by the very Spirit of God. And uh, elsewhere, this building is called the church. Jesus said, I will build my church, Matthew 16. But the spiritual house is built with living stones stones that are alive. So we're clued in this is a different kind of building, right? It's built with living stones. Having been raised from the dead, Jesus was the preeminent living stone. Down in verse 6, Peter will refer to him as the chosen, honored cornerstone. He was rejected by man, but he was chosen and precious in the sight of God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have been born again with this living hope, you are a spiritual stone being, you are a living stone being built in this spiritual house. And I like the way one commentator put it. He said, if you are, if you are a living stone, you are not set to the side in isolation. Uh, God doesn't have a heap of living stone somewhere. If you're a living stone, you are being built in this house. You are part of a larger structure. What it means is that this, this is emphasizing our corporate identity, just like the body of Christ uh, is one body with many different members. Together, we are being built into this spiritual house. Now, why would God build this house? What's his purpose? Well, Peter changes the imagery when he wants to describe it. He says, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God uh, through Jesus Christ. And so in the Old Covenant, priests were a very select few people who had this, this privilege of entering into the presence of God. And so if you were a priest, you had this, this access, and you represented people before God. You brought animal sacrifices. You brought prayers. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, again, you are part of this holy priesthood along with others in the body of Christ, you have this access to God. You can come into his very presence, bringing sacrifices, bringing prayers. And of course, there's no need to bring sacrifices for sin. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. But we offer up spiritual sacrifices, sacrifices that bear the mark of the Holy Spirit, uh, sacrifices that, that are produced, in essence, by the Holy Spirit. And these are sacrifices that are acceptable to God. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this possibility, but what we're saying here is that we together, corporately and individually, we actually have the capacity to bring things to God, sacrifices to God, and when he receives them, his basic response is, yes, 
Exactly. That's exactly what I delight in. That's exactly what I want. And so we bring these spiritual sacrifices. What are some examples? Well, we do this in the church. I uh, hope you read the, the newsletter you got in the mail or the bulletin or the e-blast, but, but we're going to have, uh, we're gonna have a, a monthly prayer night here at Faith. The first one is this Tuesday night, and we're not having a prayer night because we're supposed to, okay? If you pray out of obligation, you're not going to pray very long. You're not going to pray very well. We are having a prayer night because we are a holy priesthood. We have this capacity to come before God and bring our prayers. And again, if you just walked off the street and you're hearing this, you might be thinking, these people are crazy. They're arrogant to think they have this access to God. Well, God says this of us. He says that we can come boldly before the throne of grace to receive grace, to receive mercy in time of need. And so, Come on Tuesday night if you want to, to exercise your, your privilege as a holy priesthood. Come on, Sunday night, on, on Tuesday night if you have a need. Maybe you have a need for physical healing. Maybe something uh, t- uh, drastic has happened to you. You have a need to be, to, to be prayed for, for some other type of healing. Maybe there's a relationship that's strained and it's on the verge of, of breaking. Maybe there's some calamity on the horizon, and you want a holy priesthood to bring you before the presence of God. And so we pray because we're desperate people, and we pray because God says, I want you to come and offer your prayers. Imagine that, that think of the most powerful person you know, the person who has more influence either financially or organizationally or governmentally or whatever. Think of the most powerful person you know, and that person looked you in the eye and said, if you ever need anything, you come to me. The God of the universe says, you are a holy priesthood. If you need anything, come to me. Those who ask, receive. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, the door is opened. So that's why we're going to gather on Tuesday night. Typically, it'll be the second Tuesday of the month. We want to see God work. We're desperate to see him work in our lives, in our city, in our world. Of course, we offer spiritual sacrifices in every area of our lives. The three scenarios that I mentioned at the first of this message, those are examples of how people understand their identity. And they say, because we're a royal priesthood, I need to represent God in my neighborhood in my marriage or my family. I need to represent God through my work. And so it should be our ambition to bring the best spiritual sacrifices that we possibly can. The rest of this passage uh, really reinforces this this identity. In verses 6 through 8, Peter makes reference to to three Old Testament scriptures. And it's fascinating. God knew that some would accept Christ and others would reject him. Peter first quotes from Isaiah 28 in verse 6 there. He says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so in this world, we we are put to shame. In this world, we're out of place. We're living in exile. But whatever happened to Christ happens to his people. Christ was humiliated. He was crucified. But God vindicated him. He raised him and seated him at at his right hand. 
And so if you are in Christ, what happened to him will happen to you. There will be a day when you will not be put to shame. As a matter of fact, you will be honored. Look what Peter quotes from Psalm 118 and from Isaiah 8. He says, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. As you're probably aware, people understand that last phrase and that last sentence very differently. This is one of those verses we tend to bring our larger theology and read this in light of that. And so some understand Peter to be saying that God has destined, he has appointed some to disobey, in other words, disbelieve the gospel, and therefore uh, experience condemnation. I understand Peter be saying that by God's design, those who disobey the word by not believing, those who don't believe the gospel are destined to stumble and fall. They do not experience salvation and honor. Now, does this mean that, that people who don't currently believe can never believe? Does it mean that they can never experience this, this honor and this, this lack of shame that, that Peter's been talking about? No, the whole argument is that if we live lives that are compelling, that we will get the attention of the watching world, and there's this possibility that people can come to faith and that they can believe and that they can experience the life and the glory that is ours in Christ. Come to verses 9 and 10, and Peter again addresses readers who have believed and therefore who will not be put to shame. In contrast to those who disobey the word, Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What Peter does in these verses is very profound. He takes all these terms that were applied to Israel, the descendants of Abraham in the Old Testament, and he says, these are now fulfilled in you, the church, in the new covenant. And many of these terms were were specifically addressed to Israel being rescued from slavery in Egypt or rescued from exile in Babylon. And so I want to make just a a few brief comments on on each of these phrases. You are a chosen race. When when the Old Testament emphasized that the descendants of Abraham were a race, they they were an ethnic people that were chosen by God, the emphasis was that uh, I didn't choose you because you were the biggest, because you were the greatest, or because I would be so fortunate to have you on my side. God said, no, I just chose to set my love on you. And so the the emphasis was on because you're my chosen race, I will rescue you. I have set my love on you. I will rescue you from exile. And so what are the implications for the church being called a chosen race? Well, number one, we can rest assured that God will rescue us. Again, we live in exile in this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're, we're at odds with, with the world and the ways of the world. And yet we can be confident that God will rescue us. In chapter 1, Peter said, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the return of Jesus Christ. A second implication is that as a chosen race, the church 
has a unique ability to address the issue of racism because we are a chosen race. And the word race normally talked about a very specific ethnic group. But we are a race that is comprised of those from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And so we can show the alternative to racism. We can show what it's like to be, to have this heart level unity, to have this eternal bond in Christ Jesus that supersedes all these differences that divide the rest of the world. And so what a vision. We are a chosen race. We are. We are a royal priesthood. We are now part of God's ruling class. Again, this is a mind-boggling designation because we find ourselves so confused and so needy and so sinful, but we're part of a royalty, and so we bring this royalty to our priesthood. It informs how we pray, how we approach God. It informs how we represent God in this world. We pray, God, your kingdom come your will be done. Why? Because we're part of that royalty. We want to see the kingdom of God extended here in our world. We're a holy nation and a people for his own possession. And so that means that we are set apart for God and his purposes. We don't say, my will be done. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life. No, we say, God, your will be done. We've been bought with a price. We've been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we are God's own possession. We take our, we take our cues from him. And so Peter writes, you have this identity. These things are true of you that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, our experience of being taken from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, that experience makes us proclaim it. And let's just be honest. If you're not very impressed with what God has done in you, if you're not very impressed with Jesus Christ, you're not going to talk about it. You're not going to declare that. And if you do, it won't be very convincing. But if you have experienced that God in Jesus Christ has taken you out of darkness into his marvelous light, then how can you not talk about it? How can it not be a topic of conversation? What God has done in your life. Verse 10 is amazing. It's a reminder that our identity is purely a function of God's mercy. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If we get this, if we understand that our, our life, our identity is purely a function of God's mercy, then we will have this humble dependence upon God. Can you imagine a starker contradiction in terms than a proud Christian? A proud Christian? Are you kidding me? Uh, Our claim to fame is that we are a people who are so sinful that someone else had to die for us. We were so lost that Jesus had to leave heaven to seek and find us. We were so dead in our sin that God had to make us alive. We were a people who had not received mercy but now we have received mercy. And so if we, we understand that identity, we'll be able to hear the commands later. In chapter 5, Peter's going to say, all of you, elders, 
young men, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. If we understand our identity, we'll say, of course we're going to clothe ourselves in humility. How can I wear a cloak of superiority when we were once not a people, but now we are? When we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And so throughout, throughout the Bible, throughout the, the, the book of 1 Peter, how we live flows from who we are. Our identity is meant to be the dominant, most important influence in our behavior. And so you are a spiritual house. You are a royal priesthood. You are a people for God's possession. If you got a bulletin when you came in, you'll see this little little insert about Lent and a brief description. Lent, Lent is simply a 40-day period of time. It starts this, this Wednesday, and some of you, maybe you grew up in a church that observed Lent and it had a lot of different significance. Maybe you loved it, maybe you, you hated it, but it's really, it's really a, a time of preparation and repentance marching up to Good Friday and Easter. So it's it's 40 days. And we encourage you to be intentional during this 40-day period of time. And in an absolute sense, those 40 days are no different from any other 40 days. But why not take advantage of the rhythms of the year and the rhythms of the Christian calendar and use this 40 days as a time to seek God and to say, God, I purpose in my heart. It is my intention to seek you and find you in a specific way. And, and you, can, you can seek him in any way you want. But one possibility is that you could make your identity in Christ and this understanding that we're a spiritual house, that we are a holy priesthood, that we are God's people. You can make that the focus of your seeking after God. Of course, you can do whatever you want, but perhaps something you've heard this morning has captured your imagination. And so you might purpose in your heart, God, between now and Easter, I want you to teach me how to think and speak and act as a member of this royal priesthood. God, would you change the deep structures of my mind so that I see your commands not as an imposition, not as some burden, but as a a, a natural, obvious implication of my identity in Christ. And what you'll see in this insert is that we're encouraging you to consider giving up something and to taking up something. And what you give up, it doesn't necessarily have to be something sinful. It could be something that is, is worthy and fine, but perhaps something that is taking more priority in your life than it should have. And so maybe you want to give up social media for these 40 days. Or it may be that there is something sinful that you want to give up. You realize there's a habit, there's, there's some practice in which you engage that really clouds your thinking, and it's really at odds with your identity in Christ. And so maybe you do want to say, God, by your grace, I want to set this aside. I want to put to death this, this sin during this 40-day period of time. And so we encourage you to give up something, but as well to take up something else. In other words, a very simple, it's got to be simple. If it's too complicated to to remember, it's not going to work. But you take up something simple that perhaps will remind you of your identity in Christ and your, your royal priesthood. And so, for example, you could use the pattern of Psalm 55, 7, 17, and you could enter into prayer three times a day 
evening, morning, and noon. And you could do something as simple and say, okay, I'm going to set aside 10 minutes every evening, 10 minutes in the morning, and 10 minutes at noon, and I'm going to use that time simply to pray and talk to God about my identity as a a royal priesthood, as part of the people of God. And I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to say, God, as I look back over the last few hours, uh, how have I brought you spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to you? Or what opportunities have I missed that I, where I could have been uh, a part of this royal priesthood? <clears throat> or what opportunities lie in the future? What conversations? What, what opportunities in my, my work where I can honor you? And so the, the idea is just, I mean, you can do the math. 40 days, three times a day. Imagine if, if you took 120 10-minute blocks of time to seek God on some specific area of your life. You, you would imagine that, that over those 40 days, there would be some renewal of your mind. There might be some different ways of thinking. And imagine coming in here six weeks from today on Easter morning with a sense of satisfaction. And you're able to say, God, what you promise is true. Those who seek you, find you. Those who ask, receive. Those who knock, have the door opened. And God, I sense that you are giving me a vision for what it means to live out my identity in Christ. And I find it satisfying. And God, I find that there's nothing like it. It's better than the old way of life. God, may it continue. And we come in on Easter morning, we say, God, this is possible. The reason why we're a, a living a spiritual house, we're living stones in a spiritual house, is because Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Will you seek God with me? Will you, will you seek him during this period of Lent? Will you seek him with all your heart and soul and might? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that, that you would give us uh, the will, the motivation to seek you. God, we pray that this this season we're entering into would be rich. We pray, God, it would be significant for each of us. We pray we would walk into our identity and we would understand it and we would love it. And God, we pray that you would open our eyes to the reality of who we are. God, the indwelling Holy Spirit. God, you you allow us you you allow us to be the the. Uh, people in whom your spirit dwells. God, may we not squander what you've given to us, who you've given to us. I pray, God, for the person here today who's especially discouraged, who can't imagine that his or her life will be any different no matter what they do. Pray, God, that you would encourage them, that you would would give them spiritual strength, uh, surround them with brothers and sisters in Christ to uh, lift up their arms and encourage them in this walk. God, we do want the sense of satisfaction that we're walking into our identity. God, this has to be something you do. And so we ask it in faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.